Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a fantastic session from this year's Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Conference from the Endocrine Society. The Type 1 Diabetes Fellow Conference is really special as it addresses critical skill and workforce gaps by providing comprehensive education on Type 1 diabetes care while also strengthening the network of next generation endocrinologists. It's great. And the supporters of that conference have made this episode possible through unrestricted educational grants. So a big thank you to Abbott, Dexcom, Insulet, Lilly, Medtronic, Novo Nordisk, Prevention Bio, and Tandem. Thank you. There were many great sessions at this year's conference, but today's episode is focusing on one that was titled Addressing Depression in Type 1 Diabetes and Challenges Across the Lifespan. Our guests, we have two, are presenters from that session. Joining me is Dr. Linda Seminario, Professor of Medicine, Professor of Nursing, and Professor of Health and Community Systems at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Seminario's presentation was titled, Identifying and Confronting Challenging Transitions. Also joining me is Dr. Jill A. Weisberg-Benchel, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University. Dr. Weisberg-Benchel's presentation was titled, Developmental Perspectives in the Psychosocial Aspects of Diabetes. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you for, Thank you for having us. <laughs> All right. So both of your presentations look at diabetes challenges through life stages. Why is it so important to look at the lifespan as a journey through distinct seasons? Well, I'll start by saying that, you know, diabetes affects every aspect of your life, how you eat, what your activity is, your schedule. And, you know, if you think of this trajectory of a life, you can't compare what a, a five-year-old schedule is compared to maybe a senior with type 1 diabetes. So really, there are nuances in each developmental stage that really have implications for the care and the behavioral and the psychosocial aspects that relate to diabetes. And we have to consider those at each stage. I agree wholeheartedly, Linda. And, you know, you think about where a toddler or preschooler is cognitively, emotionally, physically, and how those change over time, how they manage distress or frustration, how they communicate their needs, and then all of the demands as a parent for a young person is different than the demands of a parent for a teenager is different than the demands of a parent or a young person when you're a young adult. And the role of parents don't go away, no matter how old the person with diabetes is and the different needs, demands, desires, and goals of the person with diabetes changes over time. And we're obliged to figure out how to facilitate growth development and optimal health, both psychologically and physically throughout the entire lifespan, whether their pancreas makes insulin or not. Dr. Weisberg-Benchel, in your presentation, you said diabetes is not a do-it-yourself disease. What, what do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is that diabetes is very demanding. It is unrelenting and it's also expensive. And so in order to thrive with diabetes, it is vital that the family and those that love that person with diabetes 
are there to support that person in different aspects of the journey. So when you are a young child, it's mostly your parents that are part of that care team. But as children grow and develop, they then add other people into their care team, into their cheerleading group, into the members of who's there for them, whether it's a best friend or a teacher or a school nurse or a coach or a librarian. And those adults and peers are part of that journey. And people do best when they are not isolated, when they are not alone. We've been talking about journey a little bit, so why don't we start at the beginning of the journey, because we're going to be talking about different life stages throughout. Let's talk about the early years, infancy, uh, toddlers, preschoolers. What are the challenges in diabetes care for this group? Well, I just would like healthcare providers to think about the challenges and that happen just with life, you know, being a parent of a a toddler, being a parent of an adolescent, it's very, very different at each life stage. I have some key things that I always would teach or talk to families about, you know, these, these are normal developmental things that happen. And then you put diabetes on top of it, and it could kind of cloud what you're responding to. So let me just give you some examples. So when you think about infants, you know, children under the age of one, they're learning just in normal development, typical development about trust and who they can trust and and just who's in their environment. And then you introduce that family and that young, young child to injections or where, you know, or finger pricks, at least in, you know, the time that I was, you know, actively practicing. So these are things that can kind of complicate things. You think of toddlers, you don't have to be a parent to know what a toddler can do with temper tantrums Mm. or fussy eating. So is it a temper tantrum? Is it hypoglycemia? What about diaper rashes? So think about that. You know, you have to be really aware that if you know the glucoses are high, this can cause a terrible diaper rash. So diabetes does have implications on things that happen in everyday life. Think about preschoolers. You know, they're learning about their body being intact. And my my own children, will, grown children, will say to me, "Mom, why do you keep putting band aids on your granddaughters?" Well, they have a little boo-boo and it's a big deal. So we collect band-aids because it makes them feel like things are intact for them. Then you think about the preschooler with diabetes. And then, you know, you go on and on and you talk about the school age or in adolescence and, and college students. It's all of those things. And then you put school on top of it. And there's this very vigilant parent who all of a sudden has to let go. So those are just typical behavioral things that happen during typical development with a layer of diabetes on top. So just some natural things to consider. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly with what you said, Linda. And I think also about um, the anxiety that parents have in trying to figure out whether some moods or behaviors are related to glucose levels or if they're just sort of a not great day. And I definitely hear more elementary and a particular teenagers say, you know, it's not helpful, mom and dad, they say in a little more assertive way, but it's not mm-hmm. helpful when you imply that somehow my bad mood is only a result of blood sugar variation as opposed to I've had a bad day. Or children that will ascribe some not great event only because I have diabetes, but it could also be 
for something that has nothing to do with diabetes. So trying to figure out who is just sort of this person and events that just happen to everybody and what's diabetes specific and how safe and independent a young person can be at different stages. Um, there's also that anxiety of letting go, even when you're littler, can they go to a play date? Can they go to the soccer field with somebody else's parent? Can they go on a sleepover? So there are just sort of normal, typical developmental milestones that children go through. And there's a layer of anxiety that's added for the parent because of the risk of, you know, mostly hypoglycemia, right? The lows um, that parents worry about when their children aren't in front of them. I just want to say, too, um, you know, just in the experiences we've had recently compared to years ago, CGM has added, you know, such a benefit, especially, you know, the parents sending the child off to school now, yes. the days, but also, you know, a little bit of the added distress we find, too, about seeing those numbers and the, the hypervigilance now that you can see those glucoses all of the time. When do you respond? When does the teacher respond? When does the adolescent ignore it? So these are also things that are wonderful, wonderful things that have evolved in science. But also we have to consider those things as it applies to that child's developmental stage. Dr. Simonario, in your talk, you spent some time focusing on legal protections for children with diabetes. Why is this so important for healthcare providers to understand? Well, because it is important because, I mean, once that child goes to school, they're at school most of their waking hours. And then you're handing over and trusting, you know, the, the teacher or the playground aide or the bus driver are keenly aware that that child has diabetes or young, even adolescent has diabetes. So you have to help the family know what they're responsible for and what the school's responsible for, because we do have the American Disabilities Act. And, you know, for years, Jill remembers, you know, the struggles we had along the way with advocating for youth with diabetes, because, you know, everybody was afraid to call it a disability, which in some ways we don't like to think of it as that, but we had to use that term in order to include it for protections that are so important. And it's really, really important for parents. And I don't care what age it is or if that child's been in the school since first grade and now they're going into fifth grade, the care plan changes. So the parents with the health team need to come up with a medical management plan. And, and that plan has to be very specific to the child, and it should be prepared well in advance because, Jill, I don't know about your setting in Chicago, but I know in our clinics in Pittsburgh, it's all summer long doing care plans, which, but don't wait till the last minute yes. and make sure it's personalized. You know, you want the parent and the healthcare team to agree on when's an appropriate time to call me? When do I need to come and get my child? What supplies do they need? So, a medical management plan is critical. Let's keep moving along the lifespan. Let's talk about diabetes in adolescence, middle school, and high school. What do healthcare providers need to keep in mind during these seasons? So I think that teenagers often are used to a hierarchical relationship with adults, where you know there are adults that set the rules and they have to follow them. That is not a particularly helpful approach in medical care. 
So the most successful providers, medical care providers, nurses, dietitians, physicians, psychologists that partner with teenagers are ones that respect that the teenager has the best and most unique insight into their own body and their own needs, and that the provider is there to collaborate and problem solve and make that visit something where the teenager got something out of it that was useful. And sometimes that is just like, you are so right, this is really, really hard. And diabetes is at its hardest in the middle of puberty because all those hormones that you have no control over make it the hardest to manage blood sugars. Because a lot of times teenagers really do feel very demoralized when they hear, why are you high? Or what did you eat? And they can't answer the question because they don't know why their numbers are high and they only ate the lunch that mom made them. And so sometimes these questions imply badness or malintent when there is none. So being able to partner with teenagers and respect that they actually know what's going on, they are mostly, almost all of them, really dedicated to feeling well and doing well. And so if they come in with a sense that their provider cares about them and gets them and partners with them, it's going to go a long way in having them stick to care even when they're older and not feel burned out or demoralized by that interaction. And just, you know, I'm thinking like an educator now working with a family, what are the things that you need to be on the lookout for? So it's not band-aids with the preschooler, but there are certain (laughs) elements of development that apply, have implications for diabetes especially for somebody that's newly diagnosed. There could be during the school day or in sports that they feel different. They feel a little different from their peers. That has to be understood and and acknowledged, but in a positive, you know, we have to sometimes work with different children depending on their personalities and their, their own social structure. There are considerations to think about, you know, that many adolescents face, you know, with dating. What, what, what do you do on the first date? Do you say, I have diabetes, this is why I can't, this is why I wear this? Dating concerns, alcohol concerns. Let's not pretend that you're going off to your freshman year in college and you're 18 years old and you're not going to drink at a fraternity party. How do you prepare for that? So we want to have open conversations with these young people. So in body image, you know, the body's changing, as Jill already suggested, that these are changes that are happening. For example, a girl's having her menstrual period during that her cycle. Maybe her glucoses are off. So these are all things that are part of normal development that may have other implications when you have diabetes. We've already talked a little bit about parents and their role along the journey as well, but How can healthcare teams best work with parents and guardians to help provide the best care for the child, especially in these early years when you know that the parent or guardian is such an integral part of that caregiving team? I'm going to just chime in very quickly, and and this is Jill's deep area of expertise. But I just want to say that the important thing is, is that as far as not only educating the parents, but making sure that they have a, a community to help them. 
So it be it a grandparent, maybe it's mom's best friend who can help. Maybe it's somebody in play date group that's another parent that can babysit or, you know, or another parent in the diabetes community that can help. My own children went to diabetes camp with me for many years and they ended up being the neighborhood babysitters or on a list of trusted people. But those people need to be identified because it, especially when these children are young, it's 24-7, 24-7. And that's what's so important is to have the supportive resources. So, Joel, I'll let you take the next no, step. I, I wholeheartedly, again, agree with you, Linda. Any way that as diabetes care providers, we can help parents and children, teenagers, not feel isolated, not feel alone, to have a sense of community and social support. And all of the research in this supports this, right? People, no matter what else is going on in their lives, if they feel like they have cheerleaders, they have people that get it, people that are there to walk that path with them, whatever that is, whether it's a parent or a person with diabetes, they do better. They're more resilient and better able to handle the ups and downs of diabetes. You know, I want to give a shout out to Adam Brown and Diatribe. Adam Brown wrote a book called Bright Spots and Landmines. And one of the things that he talks about, and anybody that wants to go to the diatribe.org website can find it, is this fabulous poster about the 42 things that can affect blood sugars over which you have no control. And especially for teenagers, I find that that is so important for them and their parents to recognize that diabetes management is so much more than the food that you put in your body, the time of the food you put it into your body, and when you take insulin and how much insulin you take. And so to sort of take away that sense of shame or blame for numbers that are out of your target range is so important. And that's a message I think we need to give to parents and families so that in truth, everybody understands it's diabetes. That's hard, not the child. I think there's even more opportunities available now. And of course, we have to think about HIPAA and all of those other dynamics going on. But, you know, I know my own grown children who went to camp with many children, young people with diabetes, they're still in contact on social media. My adult children will say, Mom, did you know Katie had a baby? And so I think, you know, we have to be careful with social media, but it can provide a venue for group discussion. I mean, we're starting to use those in clinic settings so that we can start doing that. And then camp is important. I think that's another resource for children to not feel different. And I think that the social media can also be a framework for parents to be able to communicate and get ideas and get some strength from that. With one but, and the but is not to set up hopes, beliefs, or expectations that are unrealistic. So parents have to be very careful about the information that they're getting from some of those posts and make sure that is reasonable and that they're not all of a sudden set up to believe that they're failures because there's no perfection, because there's no such thing as perfection in diabetes. I think we've done a good job so far of painting this journey as a very complex one. And it's got a lot of challenges. Dr. Weisberg-Benchel, you in your talk highlighted the connection between depressive symptoms and type 1 diabetes. What is that connection and why is it so important to understand? The what is that connection is um, not easily answered, honestly. There's lots of fabulous research 
to look at what it is about having diabetes that increases somebody's risk for depression. And there's actually some interesting data that depression in adults can increase your risk for diabetes. There are a couple of different possibilities. One is that running chronically high blood sugars actually affects um, your brain and can cause some neurologic damage, just like it could cause other kinds of damage in other body organs. Your brain is an organ and that that potentially can increase your risk for depression. That's a hypothesis. Another is that actually it's just the day-to-day burden, the never-ending, unrelentless day-to-day burden and the frustration that sometimes I set a goal and I am unable to achieve that goal no matter how hard I try which is just the biologic truth sometimes of daily life with type 1 diabetes in particular. And so that can increase your risk. That sense of helplessness can increase your risk for depressive symptoms. The thing I I think I want the audience to just pay attention to a little bit is the data is pretty clear in adults, in children, in parents, in type 1 and in type 2, that it's actually diabetes-specific emotional distress that is more closely tied to diabetes-specific outcomes like A1C and time and range than depression. So I don't want to mitigate depression. And the great news is there's fabulous treatment for depression now, both cognitive behavior therapy and some spectacular medications that have a fairly low side effect profile. So if anybody's struggling with depression, there's lots of great help out there that's empirically supported. So nobody should suffer from depression and not get treatment. But as medical providers that work in the space of diabetes, I do think the data is pretty convincing that if we're going to only be able to address or assess one psychosocial factor, it's going to be more important to assess diabetes-specific emotional distress than it is depression. You've been talking about some of the younger ages so far along the journey. And before we get to adulthood, we do need to talk about transition of care. Younger patients will have a pediatric care team for years, but eventually they will transition to another team. What are the challenges in this transition? How can we best make sure it goes as well as it possibly can? Jill, do you want to start and then I'll add some points after? Because you could talk about the emotional things and I'll talk about the process things. Sure. Well, you are living oftentimes through high school in your parents' home with people that you've known since you were little, and you have both a family support team, you have a peer support team, you know your medical providers, it's a well sort of oiled machine. And then you're told almost like, oh, surprise, you know, you're 18 now or you're 21 now, depending on the team um, and their philosophies, and now you're gonna need to go find an adult care provider. And so just that feeling of my world has just been turned upside down and what I know and what's familiar is different. And it's at the same time that often our young people are moving away from their parents' house, either they're in their first job and in their first apartment, or they're at a university or college living away from home in the dorms. Um, And they're negotiating all kinds of other transitions in their life Mm -hmm. from being a child to being a grown-up at the same time that they're also having to figure out how to access and manage diabetes-specific care. So it's a lot all at once. And, um, you know, the dynamics, because I've done both pediatrics and adults, so I, I clearly see the difference. And in the pediatric community, it often is a very nurturing, very warm kind of, you know, there's cute decorations everywhere. I'm not saying it's totally pleasant, 
but as good as you can make it, the environment, the way people approach you. And in pediatric care, we have oftentimes good relationships with all the team members, a dietitian, a diabetes educator, you know, and most type one diabetes or the majority of it is handled by pediatric endocrinologists, at least that's the recommendations. So when you jump over to adult care, and I know many, many youth in many of our clinic settings often want to stay in the pediatric side because the adult side is so different. There's a lot of studies that look at how do we best do care in this transfer, not transition, which Jill referred to, the transfer of care, the connectivity, because oftentimes that connectivity is lost. And it might be that, you know, the uh, young person is followed at the pediatric site through college and then graduates and then moves to the other side of the country. So there is a disconnect. The EMRs don't match up. Maybe they don't know. They're in a state where there's not many endocrinologists. They're seeing a PCP. I actually was shocked in our own database how many of our young people moved on to primary care doctors who don't have access to a team, who don't often know of all the new therapies. So there's a learning process. And I think there's a lot of research being done that is looking at that. And I think there will be a lot of advantages now with people's experience with telemedicine because we can provide some services that we weren't able to before because of distance. So I'll I'll stop there, but I do think that the future is going to look better, much better for the transfer of care. I agree. We will come back to telemedicine in just a moment. I want to wrap up a bit of our journey talking about adulthood. So in adulthood, people with diabetes are going to have more independence, uh, big life events, new careers. They're going to move. They're going to start their own family. In regards to diabetes care, what are some of the more important challenges in this season? Well, I'll start with something Jill started this whole conversation with is finance, understanding. And that's a big part of transfer too, is like, oh my gosh, you know, my parents always did this. Now I have to figure out where I'm going to get coverage. And as the person transitions through adulthood, you know, you get married, you start a new job. It's always that cost that you've got to think about. You know, what what does my plan cover? What can I afford? So I just want to put that out there. That that is a big challenge. Your your social environment. And let's talk about the young person with type one diabetes. You know, how involved is their spouse, their partner? What is their role? What do I tell them? How I feel? And so those kinds of things need to be attended to. In this short podcast, we can't go over all those dynamics. <laughs> sure. But attention to it. And then as we, you know, people are living longer with type 1 diabetes. So as the person ages, we've got comorbidities, things that have implications for diabetes care, dexterity, cognition, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, you know, what happens when I would see older adults going to assisted living, nursing homes, the dynamics, and we're not talking about school anymore. It's a whole other environment. And again, sometimes, you know, that it takes a lot of effort and having, you know, good resources and family and friends support. That's it in a nutshell, but we can go on for a whole. And the only thing I'm going to add or underscore is that if, 
the diabetes providers can encourage the person with diabetes to truly bring in as an equal partner their partner or spouse into the day-to-day diabetes management, everybody's going to do better. Because my experience is that when the person with diabetes is partnered or married, and they feel like it is just their burden to deal with, it is their diabetes, and they don't want to involve or burden their loved one. There's all kinds of dynamics that make life with diabetes harder. The person with diabetes is more isolated, and the spouse is feeling like they are not able to provide the love and support and care that they really want to, that they're kind of iced out of that. And then there's a challenging dynamic there that does not have to be. So if we can, as diabetes providers, encourage the person with diabetes to truly include and partner with their loved one that lives with them, everybody is going to do better. Jill, I just want to add one thing to that. And this is where I think the future is a little brighter with telemedicine. Mm -hmm. You know, we just did some work with telemedicine and rural FQHC sites. And it was amazing how we were able finally to get the older person who's living in rural Pennsylvania to be able to connect someone who's living in Wyoming through a virtual visit or the grandson that lives in the next town to be able to help with the visit. So I think telehealth will be able to provide those opportunities that were unavailable before. Agreed. So let's keep that conversation about telemedicine going. So obviously there are some great benefits that can come from it. Are there other other benefits and are there any challenges that might come along with telemedicine and caring for these groups? Well, you know, not everybody has access to the internet or, you know, strong access that's consistent. So that's a barrier. So the more that we can advocate for literally exceptional Wi-Fi access for all, regardless of where in the country you live, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your zip code is going to be huge. So that's one thing um, I think that's important. What are your thoughts, Linda? Well, there, and this is going to be rectified, I think, in the near future, is one of the things that at least our team um, has said during COVID, when they were using, you know, all telemedicine, let's say 99% of telemedicine, you know, you, you didn't often have weights. Sometimes patients didn't get their A1C, so they're not physically coming in. So you're missing some values like a blood pressure. So I think that could be a challenge, but I do think with technology, those things will be rectified in the near future. As I said, we just finished up a study and people who never saw or had an ability to see an educator were able to do it in our study through telehealth. They loved it because the educator could fill the role that the primary care doctor in these communities couldn't fill. Talking Mm -hmm. about CGM, referring them to an endocrinologist because they know where they are and the endocrinologist could do a visit. So I think the connectivity was so incredibly valuable to these people that never, ever, ever would have had that opportunity. And I think that would be, you know, the same thing that's true, Jill, for behavioral health. And I know that you're getting inundated in that space, you know, with folks seeking it through telemedicine, but for diabetes, terrific. But telemedicine has this real true opportunity to reduce barriers to access to care, unlike any other 
way of providing care that we've had available to us before. There are still some challenges besides connectivity, like how do you download everybody's data because mm -hmm. this CGM uses this system and that CGM uses that system and this pump uses this system. And so how do the providers not get overwhelmed with different systems? So once there is a unified way to download data and have it pop up in the EMR so that you can actually have actionable steps, as the medical provider to make recommendations for next steps. But that's moving. People are doing that. People are figuring that out. We're just not there yet. But I think that there are lots of really lovely opportunities. In addition to, families are inviting you into their own home. How mm -hmm. amazing is that, right? You have a teenager that says, would you, I'm going to show you my bedroom. Yes. Would you like to see, you know, like my collection of Pokemon cards? And you're like, you're a teenager and you're collecting Pokemon <laughs> you know, But you learn something about them. Or I want to introduce you to my lizard, my snake, and my three cats. And you're like, wow. So, you know, they will share with you things about their life. Or you get a much better sense of the chaos in the family, mm -hmm. the noise, the interruptions, the activity, and it gives you hopefully a renewed sense of awe for that family that in spite of all of these challenges and the busyness and noise in that environment, they still are able to manage blood sugars, monitor glucose levels, get insulin, eat on a consistent basis. And for some families, that in and of itself is just a miracle. And so to be able to see that in real time, I think is very humbling. Erin, I'd like to add one barrier and Jill, good points because you could actually look in the refrigerator. Um, right. One point that could be a potential barrier, like during COVID, all of these services were freely covered. After COVID, that may not be the uniform case across the board. I know in particular, for example, like diabetes nurse educators, which has been a wonderful resource to be able to teach somebody how to use a pump. They do pump classes over the virtual care. But if that's not reimbursable, it's going to be a problem because those dynamics aren't going to survive. So that's a potential barrier. And we have to advocate for all of those things, all of us. I feel like we've covered so much and yet have barely scratched the surface. So if you're listening to this and you'd like to know more or learn more, we're going to include a link to their session from the Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Conference. You can go ahead there and you can watch the whole thing as well as other sessions from the conference. So look at the episode description and find that link and enjoy that. And thank you so much to the both of you for joining us today and providing such wonderful information. Thank, Thank you, you so for, much for inviting us and letting us join you. That's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Weisberg Benchel and Dr. Seminario. Like I mentioned, there's so much to cover in this topic that we just didn't have the time for. If you'd like to see their presentations from the Type 1 Diabetes Fellows Conference, we'll include a link to it in today's episode description. And of course, from there, you can see other presentations from that conference. I'm always on the lookout for new topics to cover here on the podcast. If you've got a great idea, let me know by emailing us at podcast at endocrine.org. We'll be back with another fantastic dive into the world of endocrinology. Until then, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.